Genesis chapter 1, verses 24 through 31. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Back in March of 2022, uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson, who's now a justice on the Supreme Court, was in her Senate confirmation hearing. And those are emotional and difficult affairs for all parties involved. Hers was very long. But in the, in the context of that uh, confirmation hearing, she was asked this question, can you provide a definition for the word woman? Can you provide a definition for the word woman? Jackson responded, I can't. The senator said, you can't? Jackson said, not in this context. I'm not a biologist. So that caused a big stir, lots of reporting on that exchange. The USA Today came to her defense and they said, actually, even biologists <clears throat> can't do it. The biologists they talked to wouldn't, weren't willing to define what a woman was. So the conclusion by USA Today was, scientists agree that there is no sufficient way to clearly define what makes someone a woman. But that's not the whole story. So Justice Jackson is a married woman, and she has two daughters. And if you asked her, are you married to a man, she would say yes. And if you asked her if she had two daughters, she would say yes, without any equivocation. And in all the reporting about Katanji Brown-Jackson, her nomination was, was a significant historical event in many ways. But in all the reporting on her being nominated, she was described as the first black woman on the Supreme Court. And as far as I know, there was never any belabored defense of the fact that she was black or a woman. It was just automatically assumed by everyone who knew. In one NPR article that talked about, uh, this, um, about Jackson's nomination and, and eventual um, placement on the Supreme Court, very matter-of-factly, the NPR article described her husband and her two daughters, lovely daughters who she loves very much, described Justice Jackson as a woman, and there wasn't a single word, not a single word of explanation on any of those ideas. Husband, wife, daughters, no need. 
because everybody knows that what a woman is and what a man is. There was no need to define these things in an article like that. Now, and what's also true is if you were with Katanji Brown Jackson and her husband, who seems to love her very much, he, he wept numerous times during the, the nomination hearings. You know, if you were with the two of them at the ultrasound when the, when the doctor's looking at the, at the baby, they would ask, is it a boy or a girl? And how would they know? Well, the ultrasound tech wouldn't, wouldn't call in a biologist. They would just look at the picture, and they would, they would look, well, does it have boy parts or girl parts? And then they would say, it's either a boy or a girl. No need for scientific verification on these ideas. These are very straightforward ideas. But, the whole, but this, whole, uh, this whole backstory, it's 18 months now, this whole backstory illustrates for us the way that sin complicates things. Sin complicates things. Sin does not simplify things. Sin complicates things. Biological sex and gender are actually very straightforward things. You know, if you have girl parts, you're a girl, and if you have boy parts, you're a boy. We could, we could stop the sermon right there. This is a sermon on gender and sex, and we could stop right there and just go home with that. But sin complicates, and there's a couple ways it, it complicates. This is, this is a fallen world. We have fallen bodies. This is a disease-ridden world. And not all bodies work as they're supposed to work. In fact, not all body, bodies have all the parts they're supposed to have. And, and that's true in the womb, I mean. In the womb, that's true. Because we live in a fallen world, not all bodies are as they should be. And that's a very sad reality to our world. And sin complicates also at a soul level. Sin confuses us in our own souls, in our own psychology. We can begin to think we see something that isn't there. So what, and in, in the context of this idea that we're talking about this morning, what God defines clearly and pretty straightforwardly as a woman, sin defines as a man. And what God defines pretty simply and straightforwardly as a man, sin can define as a woman. Our series is right from the start. What was true from the start in the book of Genesis? So we're still in chapter 1 of Genesis. We eventually will get out of chapter 1 of Genesis, but we are still in chapter 1 of Genesis. But we have some more ground to cover. And so in these early chapters of Genesis... From the start, we learn things we need to know about sex and gender. And that's what today's sermon is about. We're going to spend several weeks on what it is to be a man and a woman. And what it means to be uh, uh, the the full doctrine of man is given in chapters 1 through 2 in Genesis. So I'm in some ways just doing a bit of a flyover with several themes we're going to revisit for the next uh, three to five weeks. Uh, on these topics. So what I talk about, I'll talk about sex and gender th- this morning. Uh, Benjamin's going to talk about being transgenderism next, next Sunday. We're going to have a sermon on vocation, doctrine of work, a sermon on work, or sorry, on marriage, uh, all these coming up. So this morning, it's sex and gender from, from the Word of God. Point one is going to be defining sex and gender. Point two is back to the garden. Point three is the view from the end. Point four, living east of Eden. It's back to the garden. So defining sex and gender, back to the garden. The view from the end, living east of Eden. It was hard in preparation for the sermon. 
and for Benjamin's next Sunday, it was, it was, it was hard not to keep thinking, wow, 100, 200, 300, 400, 500 years ago, this, this sermon was entirely unnecessary. John Calvin never preached a sermon on what it meant to be a man or a woman. He never, he never preached one. And he preached a lot of sermons, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sermons. But we live in a very different day. So in 2023, such a sermon is, it is required. So we want to think about God's word. And, and as God's people, we want to be humble as we do that. We, <clears throat> whatever truth we truly know, whatever truth we know that is according to God's truth, we know only because God has revealed it to us. It's not because we're so smart, we woke up, we read all the right books, and we figured it out. No, God revealed it to us. And even the fact that we responded rightly to the truth that he revealed is his grace at work in our hearts. So we do want to be humble as we do that, but at the same time, courageous. We want to be confident in our possession of the truth. That's me right there. (laughs) So you're seeing what millions of people around the world right now are seeing. (laughs) Or at least 37. I think 37 is the number. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit to illuminate your word. We thank you that we are men and women made in your image. And we pray, Lord, for a confidence in our understanding of your word, a right understanding in our understanding of your word, but also confidence in it. And we pray for a love for those that we encounter throughout our lives, uh, often in our own families. Um, There's just a true love for others. We pray that we would be able to love people where they are, whatever... Um, responsibility we might have to speak or, or do certain things. We do pray for just a sincere love for them, uh, that we would know them and love them in their weakness, in their state of sanctification or lack of it, their state of conversion or lack of it. Uh, and we pray that you would give us that, that, um, that, winsome, that winsome way of speaking to others to win them to your truth. Help us to be good models of your truth and and those who can rep- reflect it in our words and actions well. Help us with that, Lord. We know that we are prone to self-righteousness. Uh, we are prone not to be humble. And so we pray, God, that you, through your spirit, would give us the humility we need. And we thank you, Lord, that you have revealed yourself as Father, our Father in heaven, and Christ, our brother. How amazing, Lord, that you would invite us into your family, as it were, as Christians. How amazing that is to have received the spirit of adoption, to be a part of your family. Be glorified today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Point one, defining sex and gender. When God says, male and female... He created them. That was, a, that was a basic reference to biological sex. But it also includes this larger category, which is, a, which is a fuzzier category, but this larger category of gender. Now, in terms of sex, there's, there's two sexes, and it has to do with the body parts. You know, if you have the girl parts, you're a girl, and if you have the boy parts, you're a boy, and all the reproductive uh, potential that goes along with that. And there's a beautiful complementariness in our body parts, the way that a uh, uh, a husband and wife fit together physically. It's a beautiful thing. It, the one flesh thing is a, is a beautiful thing. It's beautiful in that it produces children, uh, Lord willing, as he, as he allows. And it's beautiful when there is no children. It's the sheer act of togetherness and pleasure that goes along with that. 
But then gender is this broader, kind of a fuzzier category. What do we mean by gender? Gender in some ways is tapping into the meaning of our biology. You know, if our, if our sex is really just our physical biology, well then our gender has to do with what does it mean? What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? So our biological differences point to things which are true of us as uh, men and women, our genders and the callings that go along with those. Dr. Jordan uh, Stefaniak is at the University of Birmingham, and he did a, he did a lecture here in the U.S. On, on this, on these issues. And he defines sex and gender in a way that's, I think, fairly accepted and fairly non-controversial. So when you talk about sex, biological sex, you're talking about biological features of a person, such as chromosomes, sex organs, and hormones. When you talk about gender, you're talking about a broader set of things, social features, perhaps, of a person, such as norms, uh, positions, uh, uh, positions in society, that is, or in a, in a community, performances, phenomenological features, behavioral traits, self-ascriptions, and roles. Now, that basic breakout of sex and gender isn't where the controversy lies. I think all, all Bible-believing Christians would have, would have some sense that there's your sex, your, your physical sex, and then there's this broader thing that, that you're called to do as a man or a woman. But where the controversy lies is in how are those two things, sex and gender, connected? Can they ever be separated? Is there a flexibility, perhaps, for one or both of those things? How fixed are they? That's where all the controversy is. You know, if they're not fixed, then maybe I can change one or both of those. Maybe I can change my sex or I can change my gender. Well, as you might guess, our culture and our world have an answer to that question or those questions. We, we actually have a different answer to those questions. So point two, back to the garden. Uh, as I said, this is the first of several sermons on these chapters and on many of the issues I'm going to talk about. But we go back to the garden to think about gender, because in the garden you have sex and, and gender totally absent the fall. There's no sin. There are no fallen bodies. There are no fallen souls in the garden. And so that gives us uh, almost, you can think of it like a control experiment for what gender and, and sex are. We don't have to factor in, yeah, but sin. There was no sin. This is man and woman as God created them. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then immediately after that, immediately after male and female, he created them, you get the commands from God to the couple, the first couple. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful. Be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So male and female are there in verse 27. In verse 28, the first thing told to them is to be fruitful. And so that tells us something about our sex and our genders. That when those two, the male and female, come together, children happen. Now in chapter 3, we don't technically know who has the child in chapter 1. You know, suspense. Uh, chapter 2, we don't, we're not quite sure. In chapter 3, we realize, oh, it's the woman who has the child. And we all know that, but the woman has, is the one who has the child. 
And then in chapter 2, as the, uh, uh, fast forward just a bit, chapter 2, it's kind of the slow motion replay, uh, the, you know, the video assisted review or whatever for, for day 6 of creation. And now we, now we see maybe more step by step how all this unfolds, and you realize that Adam was actually made first, things happen with Adam, and then Eve comes on the scene afterwards. But in chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, you get the first thing uh, told to Adam. Uh, the first thing that happens to him, and then, and then the first thing told to him. So the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. His vocation. He's given a job, a task, a vocation, a calling by the Lord to work and keep. And those are, those are fascinating words. Uh, there's, a, there's a thoroughness. Uh, he's, it's not just taking care of the garden as it is, but there's this expectation that as you care for the garden, there's going to be this expansion of the garden. You know, maybe even expanding the Garden of Eden throughout the whole earth. There was something in that, um, that task that was a, a creative, initiatory task, an energetic task. And then the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. The first statement of God's law to God's people. So God speaks his law to his people. And the expectation is that they would know his law, obey his law, and the expectation is that Adam would teach his law. It's a very priestly kind of function that Adam is given here. This isn't just a, hey, hey Adam, this is just between me and you. I want you to know this, this law. Now, the expectation was that Adam would then become the teacher and the priest, the, the, the kind of type of a Levite, right, who is preaching and prophetically revealing God's word to everyone who comes along later. That's why does Eve know the law when she's talking to the serpent in chapter 3? Because Adam taught it to her. So that gives us hints at the, kind of the unique calling of the man. He's called to his work in a special way. But we learn almost immediately, he needs help. This is a guy who needs help. You know, like all of us who are guys, we need help. And so verse 18 then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. You know, I've watched him for 25 minutes. It's not good that this guy is alone. <laughs> Things will not go well if this guy stays alone. So I will make him a helper fit for him. And so all the animals, of course, famously paraded before Adam. And this is, uh, this is before uh, things like ADHD. So he's very focused in his task, right? So there's, it's, a, it's a significant task. And yet he's focused in his task. And, and there, is a, there is a hint here that Adam was a man of unusual intelligence. He was no dummy. He saw this incredible variety of animals, came up with names for them. But no helper is found for him. So then it says in verse, verse 22 that God took Adam's rib and made that rib into a woman. Now that word made is literally build. The same word that's going to be used in a few chapters for building the Tower of Babel. It's the same kind of word. And building altars in other places in the Old Testament. It's the same verb. So where God speaks galaxies into existence, piece of cake just speaks it. Let there be, and there is. He formed the man, it says. So he takes the dust, he forms the man in some way, and then he breathes breath, breathes life into the man. But he built the woman. He builds the woman. So in some ways, it's as if at every, at every step of this, there's a kind of escalation. God's more involved. There's a more intentionality. 
So he, she's built specifically for the man. She is physically, specifically built for the man, and she is in her personality and her soul as well, built specifically for the man. He's ecstatic, sees Eve, and then in verse 24, we read about marriage, verse 24 and 5 in chapter 2, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, because they are physically built for one another. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So a picture of peace, harmony between the man and the woman, the man and the woman in creation, the man in himself. There's no shame, there's no guilt, there's no regret. <clears throat> and then the two of them, and they're, and they're God. They're in right relationship with God, all that true. And so by the time you get to this point, we've learned some things about sex and gender. We've learned that a man and a woman are physically compatible. They're complements. And that's a picture, really, of their relational complementariness. Being one flesh isn't just a a physical act. There's also a relational component to that, a companionship component to that. They are distinctly two. They are two individuals. Adam and Eve are two individuals, and yet they are meant to become one in this very beautiful way. In becoming one, we see they, they produce children. The man created to be in right relationship with God, as is the woman, both of them individually called to be in right relationship with God, true of both, both sexes. The man is created for work in a special way, and the woman is created to help him in, in his work. Both are created to know and obey God's law, but there is a, there is a special command, uh, uh, implied command for the man to be the teacher of that law to his family and then to others. So thus far, we get some about the biology and some about gender, the meaning of what it is to be a man and a woman. We don't get everything, but we do get a lot. So that's the view from the beginning, before sin taints anything. The bodies and the souls of Adam and Eve at that point, at the end of chapter 2, are untainted in any way. And now we want to fast forward to the end, the view from the end. And this, the reason to do this, and so this is another, another uh, era in which sin is not an issue. This is on the back end. Sin's been dealt with. We're now into the new heavens and new earth. Christ's return has already happened. And now, so in some ways, this answers the question, what remains true of us? What remains true of us after this life is over? And that points us then to what is, what is an essential part of us. If it remains true even then, well, it's, it's probably an essential part of us, right? Well, one, one thing kind of obvious, but we have bodies in the new heavens and new earth. We're not floating spirits. We're not ghosts just, just endlessly uh, parading around. Uh, we're not flying. We're embodied, embodied souls. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, we looked at this in in detail this summer, but 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's reflecting on our resurrection bodies. And he says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead, what is sown is perishable. You know, we, we know about perishable foods, right? Those are the foods that spoil, that go bad. You better eat them quickly because they perish. So what is sown bodily is perishable. What is raised in the resurrection is imperishable. No decay, no disease, It will never spoil. It's imperishable. 
It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. It's raised in dishonor, it's raised, it's sown in dishonor, sorry. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. No longer tainted in any way by the curse of sin. So glorious, you know, authors have reflected on this, so glorious that it would be, if you were to meet someone, if you were to meet yourself as a glorified person, you would bow in fear because the body would be, because the person would be so glorious in front of you. You know, shining, I, I, don't, I don't mean physically shining, but the holiness of the person you would encounter would be glorious. It's raised in power. None of the weaknesses that afflict us in this life will afflict us in the new heavens and new earth. No diseases, no death anticipated, no slow decline over, long, over many years. We're raised in power. And we're raised a spiritual body. Not a physical body, but a spiritual body, which, again, doesn't mean we're, we're spirits floating around, we're ghosts. We're not you know, like demons or angels in that sense, spirit beings. It has to do with our, our bodies and our souls in perfect harmony. You know, right now our bodies are, are, in some ways, our enemies. Our bodies want things and crave things, and it, and it can tempt our soul to want and crave those things and to give in to, our, and to, to, give in and to sin. But in the new heavens and new earth, in our spiritual bodies, that will never be the case. Our bodies will always do what they should do, and our souls will always want them to do what they should do. There will be no conflict there. We will be raised spiritual bodies. So the point of all that is, is just, to, just to say that our bodies aren't these temporary housing situations that you know, we're, we're here for a time, but eventually we're going to be free of this body. Well, we kind of are. You know, when, when we die, if we die before the return of Christ, well, there is, a, there is an escape from this broken body that we have right now. But at the resurrection, we will be rejoined to our body. Our body restored, our body glorified. And so our, our, souls and our, our, our soul is meant to be housed in this body forever. And you can see this in... in the resurrection of Christ as well. So he is the forerunner. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, and we, we encounter him in various scenes uh, as a resurrected man, as a glorified man, in fact. And we see that he's a man. He's recognized as a man in a body. At the transfiguration, there's Moses, there's Elijah. They're recognized as men in bodies by the apostle Peter. Jesus in the parable about the rich man and Lazarus. Those men are talked about as men in bodies. So we see an, an embodiedness and our genders remain. Our genders don't change. Our genders are, there's, there's no merit. Jesus teaches there's no marriage in heaven, but there are men and women in heaven. And they're consistent with uh, what we are now. They're glorified, yes, but it's consistent with what we are now. Men here will be men there. Women here will be women there. There's another concept, which is that in the new heavens and new earth, we are brothers and sisters in, uh, in God's people, in the church, we who are glorified, the saints who are there, we are called brothers. So there's this, there's this horizontal connectedness that we have to other men and women. And so as, as you take all these 
passages together, you see the church and the triune God in this perfect harmony in the new heaven and new earth. Uh, The church, our brothers and sisters, uh, all of us in Christ. We see God as our Father in this beautiful, fulfilled way. And then Christ, Christ is described as our our brother. Romans 8.29 says that the purpose of God is that we would be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So the view, when you look all the way, fast forward this, this, uh, this, this unfolding movie to the very end, you see glorified souls and glorified bodies with genders. You see men who are sons of God, women who are daughters of God, brothers with Christ and sisters with Christ. And there's even this sense, maybe you can think of it this way, that there's even a sense that we are mothers and fathers when we get to heaven and that because of the responsibilities that we will carry out in heaven. We're called a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Revelation 5, 9, and 10. What are we going to be in heaven? A kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign. We shall reign on the earth. So that sense of responsibility, that responsibility for others. And the reason I set it up that way is sons and siblings and then parents is because of uh, some work by Patrick Schreiner. So he's, he's tried to think about what is it to be a man and a woman. And it's, it's hard to capture enough so that, you, so that you capture it well. It's hard to capture it enough so that you're not leaving out these major things. So I'm going to read his complicated definition, and then I'm going to simplify it just a little bit. So this is uh, from an article he wrote. So he says that the fundamental meaning of masculinity, being a man, is sonship, Brotherly love, and this, isn't, this is clunky, but we'll, we'll unpack it just for a second. Sonship, brotherly love, and potentiality toward paternity, the potential to be a father. The fundamental meaning of femininity, femininity is daughterhood, sisterly love, and potentiality toward maternity. So when you think about what it is to be a man, you have these three sides to yourself. I'm a son. Every one of us who's a man is a son. I'm a son of of a physical father, but I am a son of God as well. And that very much defines who I am. Both of those, actually. I'm a son of Joseph Brooke Baker, and I'm a son of God. I'm also a brother. I'm a brother to all of you who are Christians. And as a father, that potentiality toward paternity, what he's getting at there is that not all of us will be physical fathers, but all of us who are men are called to be spiritual fathers. And if, and, if we are, and if we do become physical fathers, we're called to be both physical and spiritual fathers. We don't leave off the spiritual side just because we're physical fathers. We add both of those things. So that's what he's getting at. And mothers the same way, or women the same way. So uh, a fundamental orientation of a woman is that she's a daughter. She's a physical daughter of a physical mom, but also a daughter of God, which defines all behaviors, all thoughts, uh, all, all activities for that woman. She's a sister. She's a Christian. She's a, she's a Christian sister and relating to other brothers and sisters in the church in that way. And then there's this potentiality toward maternity. She's a, at, at the very least, she's gonna, as she ages, she is to become a spiritual mother of others. But the Lord might also have for her that she's a physical mother, in which case she's both a physical and a spiritual mother. 
So Schreiner simplified, you can think of it this way, a man before God to be a son, a brother, a father, a woman before God to be a daughter, a sister, a mother. That might not capture every single thing, but it does capture a lot. The differences in the genders. Being a son is different than being a daughter. Responsibilities are different for sons and daughters. Being a brother is different than being a sister. Being a father is certainly different than being a mother. The responsibilities are different. The tasks, the, the callings from God are different. And so Schreiner's trying to tap into all of that diversity. So yes, there's a, this, is why we, this is why you need that concept of gender at some level. You know, we're talking about biological sex, yes, the difference between a physical man and a physical woman, but there's so much more attached to those things that we're called to be and to do. And so that's why this son, brother, da- father, daughter, sister, mother uh, contrast. So that's the garden, and then fast-forwarding to the end. But we don't live in Eden, and we don't live in the new heavens and new earth. We live east of Eden. And if you recall, uh, this is point four, living east of Eden. If you recall, in the garden, when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, there was a gate on the east side of Eden, and they were sent out that gate and told never to return. And just to make sure that they didn't return, there were cherubim with fiery swords placed there at the gate so that they would never return. And so Adam and Eve, along with all the rest of us, we live east of Eden, as it were. And so gender east of Eden gets more complicated. It gets fuzzier sometimes. But the good news is that most of the Bible, almost all the Bible, is written for people who live east of Eden, right? So east of Eden happens at the end of chapter 3, the third chapter of your Bible, The new heavens and new earth doesn't really happen in some ways until Revelation 21 and 22. Well, that's a lot of your Bible between that. Addressed to people who are living east of Eden. So what does does gender, how does this pop up for us who are east of Eden? Well, you find the same thing. There are two genders. So when Jesus is teaching, he's actually teaching on divorce. But as he's teaching, he goes back to the garden. Because what's taught, uh, what's ta- uh, what happened in the garden and what is taught in the garden is still relevant. And so he says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. So the perspective of the Son of God is there's male and there's female. There's two genders. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. So after thousands of years of human living and knowledge, and further written revelation in the Old Testament, you still see two genders. You get to the Apostle Paul, fast forward after the life of Christ, 1 Timothy 5, he's, he's talking to Timothy uh, as his protege who's, who's over, overseeing the church in Ephesus, and he's talking to Timothy about how to treat people. And he says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. It's, it's really brilliant advice, actually. It captures so much without going and belaboring all the details. But the key thing for us is that you have two genders. You have older and younger. So there is such a thing as an older man and a younger man. And there is such a thing as an older woman and a younger woman. But you still just have men and women. There's no need for another category of person. And then in the commandments and examples, we see 
how we are to live according to our genders. So 1 Corinthians 11.3, we won't put all these quotes up. 1 Corinthians 11.3, Ephesians 5.22, we're told that the husband is the head of the wife. The husband is, is to be the head of his home. It's something told of the husband that's not told of the woman and the wife. Again, it's not all, all men are heads, are heads over all women. That's, that's not what's happening. It's in the very specific context of a marriage. The man is the head of the home. Paul tells the Corinthian men, act like men. Be strong. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Act like men. Be strong. And he says act like men as if that means something. Men don't act like women. Women don't act like men. Men act like men. Women act like women. That's implied there. The fact that he adds be strong to that is relevant for us. There's a kind of strength that's appropriate for a man. There's also a kind of strength that's inappropriate for a man. So elsewhere in Paul's writing, he says, do not provoke your children to anger. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. That's a misuse of your strength. And to husbands, do not be harsh with your wives. Colossians 3.19, a misuse of your strength. We're called to be strong, but not to be jerks. We're called to be strong, but not to sin. Peter's talking to women. He says, he says to them to be like the holy women who hoped in God in the Old Testament. So he's going to highlight Sarah, but it's true of Ruth, it's true of Esther. Be like the holy women who hoped in God, as they were hoping in God. Uh, don't be like the holy women when they, they, were, they were doing less than that. But be like the holy women who hoped in God. And then the Bible also teaches there are ways that we can, we can live short of our gender. We can, we can live um, disconnected from our gender in very wrong and inappropriate ways. And so just a couple verses here. Uh, Benjamin's going to say more about this next week. But as one example, there's a, there's a kind of dress that's appropriate and a kind of dress that's inappropriate. So in De- Deuteronomy 22, the command is, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. So women should dress like women and men should dress like men. Don't confuse the genders by the dress. And then there's such a thing as, as behaviors, a, a kind of immorality that we can do which, which defies our gender. And so Leviticus 18, this is echoed in different passages in Old and New Testament, but Leviticus 18, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. So those are moral choices we are making. But even in those moral choices, our gender isn't changed. Our obedience changes, but not our gender. Our gender is still the same. We're just not living according to the God-given gender we've been given. But we do, the living east of Eden, we don't, there are profound ways we can be broken in our bodies and our souls. We can be very sick and confused. Now, Katanji Brown-Jackson isn't, isn't like that. She's, she's just, a, I imagine, in some ways, she's just a product of her day, right? So there's a confusion in the culture, and she's just reflecting that culture. 
But there are individuals who are so personally confused in their psychology and perspective on the world around them, they really can't see, see things that are there. Now, there's also self-deception. And so that's, that confuses matters, doesn't it? You can be self-deceived, and you can be stubborn in your deception. And then you can also be truly deceived, truly confused and seeing things that are just not there in a, in a very uh, disorienting and wrong way. So there is care required, obviously, as we, as we live out these ideas and these truths. But at the end of the day, we don't want to be confused about what the truth is. The truth is that there's a man and there's a woman. A man before God is to be a son, a brother, and a father. A woman before God is to be a daughter, a sister, a mother. And may God help us to, to know that, believe that, live that out. And as we encounter people who disagree with us or reject that or are confused on those issues... May God give us grace and help. We don't want to add to the, the problem uh, our pride and self-righteousness. We want to approach those situations with humility, but with truth. We don't want to confuse the truth. Nobody has helped if we confuse the truth. It's not compassion to change truth. You're hurting people. You're not helping them if you change the truth. But applying truth, that, that takes wisdom, that takes love, that takes compassion. It's complicated. But at the end of the day, Paul says to speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. Maybe you've heard that idea, so as we close here, maybe you've heard that idea that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And, and it's true. We are, we are sinners in need of the redemption of Christ at the foot of the cross. None of us needs it less or more. We just need it, profoundly, desperately need the forgiveness that's offered at the foot of the cross. But there's something true also that the ground is level east of Eden. East of Eden, you and I need grace to live according to how we're supposed to live. I need grace to be a Christian man, a faithful Christian man. Desperately, I desperately need grace to be a faithful Christian man. If you're a woman, you desperately need grace to be a faithful Christian woman. And so in that sense, the ground is level outside of Eden. We might have a slightly better understanding of what it is to be a man or woman than the next person, but we still need grace desperately to live that out. To be faithful as a, as a man, to be a faithful son of God, to be a faithful brother in Christ, to be a faithful actual and spiritual father. As a woman, you need grace to be a faithful daughter of God, sister in Christ, and spiritual mother. And you find grace in God the Father. So for God the Father, so love the world. We added the Father there. It just says for God so love the world, but it's the Father. For God the Father so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We find grace in the Lord's Prayer, which begins our Father in heaven. We find grace in Christ, the firstborn among many brethren. Christ our brother. We find grace in him. We find grace in the Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption, the spirit that makes us children of God. And we find grace in the church as we live life with other brothers and sisters in the church. We find grace. We find grace as we embrace the spiritual fathers and mothers that the Lord has placed in our life. We find grace as we take care of the spiritual children the Lord has given us in the church. We, are, we receive grace as we take care of others in that way. So whatever your family is or was or will be, there's grace in the family of God for you. 
You know, whatever your earthly father was or is or will be, there's grace in your heavenly father. There's grace there. People can't be replaced in some simplistic way, but there is grace. And if, if you lack a father or a mother as they should be, faithful as they should be, it's amazing how God is faithful to bring into in, your life spiritual fathers and mothers to fill, that, to fill that much of that void. Not completely, but much of it. So just know whatever your grace or whatever your situation is, your experience is of being a man and a woman, there is grace for you. There is grace. There is grace in Christ. There's not grace in rebelling against Christ, but there is grace in coming to Christ, asking for help, confessing your sin, confessing your resistance, confessing your rejection, confessing your rebellion, and falling on your face before him, crying out, save me, save me. There's grace there. There's grace there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being men or women as, as you have made us. We thank you for the bodies that you've given us. We recognize, Lord, that not all of our bodies work like they should, and uh, there can be confusion even at a, at a bodily level. We understand that. We thank you for the bodies you've given us, Lord. We pray that you would, you would give us that Romans 12 commitment to use these bodies for holy ends. We pray that we would lay down our lives, lay down our bodies to be spiritual offerings, spiritual sacrifices. We pray, Lord, for any confusion in our mind, confusion in our thinking about these issues. We pray that you would bring clarity, bring truth, bring repentance where it's required. Lord, we understand that the culture around us feels so complex and so difficult to relate to. So, and at the same time, Lord, just, just help us to be mature as we do that. Help us to be courageous, being wise about where we pick fights and where we don't. And we pray. We pray for Christians in this country to stand strong. We pray for men to act like men and women to act like women. That they would take their cues from the word of God and not from the culture around them. We pray that your church would just be filled with converted men and women who are joyful in their callings as men and women, not resisting in their hearts, but joyfully embracing this beautiful way that you've called us to live as, as men and women, husbands and wives, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters. Lord, you who is the perfect creator, Lord, we look at the stars in a night sky and we're overwhelmed by the beauty and the majesty of it. And yet, Lord, our biological sex and our gender is, is the same kind of beautiful creation. It's marvelous. It's marvelous the way that you cause a husband and a wife to complement one another in so many ways. Let's be worshipers, Lord, who delight in that reality. I pray, Lord, for uh, those 15 to 30-year-olds growing up in this culture that's uh, not helping them in so many ways, that, where they so often get cues and distortions of your truth. Would you preserve them, protect them, help them, give them wisdom beyond their years, give them true discernment to see beyond the lies and confusion and deception, Lord, which is just so prevalent out there. Did you help them, Lord? Let them faithfully reflect, joyfully reflect, beautifully reflect what it is to be a man or woman in Christ. 
We pray all these things in Christ's name, the firstborn among many brethren. Amen.